This podcast does not represent the views of Cisco College and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. Welcome to Cisco Compass, stories from the big country of West Texas, the podcast that tells the untold stories and introduces the personalities of the big country of West Texas. I'm your host, Cisco College history professor, John Carraway. All right, welcome to another episode of the Cisco Compass Stories from the Big Country of West Texas. It's been so long since I've done one of these, I almost forgot the title. Uh, took a little hiatus during summer one, but we're finally back on track uh, with the podcast. And we kind of did a last-minute thing today. Uh, Dr. Debbie Lyles, Deborah Lyles from Carlton, is here with us today as she's in town tonight for a talk at the Grace Museum. Uh, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, indeed, John. Glad, glad you're here. It's great to be here. Good. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, who you are, that sort of thing. I uh, am an associate professor at Tarleton State University and also the W.K. Gordon Chair of Texas History. I work with the Gordon Center, which is a museum that holds all things Thurber in Thurber, Texas. Um, we talk about mining and brick making and we have a research center where everybody's welcome to add to their research of industrial history. Um, personally, I research slavery and all things related to enslavement in uh, in and along the frontier of 1860 Texas, um, especially as it relates to the livestock industry. Good. That's a good summary, Coach. You have a lot going on. I do. I, I seem to like to be busy. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you're over busy. Huh? I am, but I think I think that works most of the time, so I'm good with it. Good. Well, like a lot of us, uh, you didn't come directly to the historian's field. I did not. Not to, you know, walk on Scott and Jean much, but tell us uh, how you came to be a historian, how you came to do what you do. I actually tried to go to college when I first got out of high school, um, back in the 1980s. Um, I took two classes um, and then dropped out and um, got married, had kids, and uh, started a business. And somewhere around the time my daughter was approximately 16 years old, she started college. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to start that too. And so after I had bartended, uh, had a stained glass business, I decided to go ahead and start my college career. And I loved it so much, I just kept going until I got my Ph.D. Um, taught at UNT for five years after my Ph.D. And then was lucky enough to be hired by Tarleton. Good. And you've been at Tarleton how long now? Five years. Just got my five-year mark. That's good. Doesn't seem like it's been that long. It doesn't. At all. No. Tarleton's growing. If y'all haven't been down to Stephenville lately, not just in Stephenville, but in all its little satellite campuses, and especially Fort Worth. Yeah, yeah, y'all are running out of room in Stephenville now. We are, but we're, <laughs> we're acquiring some more. We're always making room. Good, so that's good. good. Tear some stuff down. Yeah. Well, tell us about your historical work. You do a lot on ranching and slavery and the tie between those two areas. Kind of talk about that a little bit and tell our listeners a little bit about what your the groundbreaking work you're doing in that area. Well, traditionally, uh, the use of enslaved labor um, and, and people themselves was tied to cash crop agriculture. Um, 
I was driving along the road one day when I worked at Denton, and I realized that uh, this land was never really used for cotton, never would be used for cotton, but the cows were happy out there grazing. And I started thinking and started processing and started documenting property tax records from the 1840s until the 1865s. Um, And if you document enough numbers, you start seeing a pattern. Um, And I was told by my mentor, Mike Campbell, uh, Dr. Randolph B. Campbell, otherwise known as Mike, that... um, No one ever called him that. I know. Not one. (laughs) Well, his mother did. (laughs) That's probably about it. Yeah. That was it. His mother insisted she be called Randolph, and his daddy insisted he be called Mike, and guess who won? But um, (laughs) I was told that if you collect enough data, that the data would tell the story, and that's precisely what happened. Uh, You can see the connection um, between uh, successful ranching people, although we didn't necessarily call them ranches at the time, Um, and you can see uh, the use of enslaved labor, whether it was to work in the house uh, with the wife, with the children, or uh, plant cotton and wheat out in the fields, or to actually help with the livestock Um, business itself. Cool. That was a good summary in about three minutes. Very good. (laughs) What's your end goal with that research? Where do you eventually want that to end up? And what's your, what, what do you hope to do with that research? I have, I have several books planned. Um, (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) But the, the recent main reason for that is because I stumbled across a time period in Texas history where the livestock industry does not get enough attention. It's mm-hmm. always about the post-war years. Um, and we always talk about how all the Confederate soldiers came home and all this livestock was running around on the frontier, all feral and ready to be claimed by somebody. Um, but we don't ever question the property tax records that say more than $53 million worth of livestock was claimed in Texas at that time, and it grew more and more throughout the Civil War, and that Texas um, had a very active cattle trade before uh, the Civil War ended. And I do think that that is largely in part to um, the the noted cowboys um, in the years after, the successful cattle barons, who basically wanted to blaze their own trail and take the credit for the success of the industry after the war. Out of all the research you've done in all those property records, what's the most interesting story you found, or what's your favorite story that you found? Because it's about people, ultimately. I, I think it's about the story of migration overall, um, the the fact that so many people capitalized on opportunities that we haven't recognized before, the connection to the California gold rush, um, the involvement of women in the industry, um, the the involvement of people of color in the industry. Um, There's one that I wrote about uh, Martha Loring, who I actually thought was Martha Loving, and I'm writing a biography of Oliver Loving, and so in the back of my mind, I thought, I'm going to come back to that because obviously she must be connected. They're so close um, distance-wise. Um, and I came back, and I had actually transcribed the records incorrectly myself, which is something that we always um, get upset about when people do it. And they're, and they're somebody – I thought I knew how to do this quite well, and then I had made that mistake myself. 
Um, and to see and follow her trail going through probate records, going through tax records, um, going through deed records, um, and seeing how active she was in the livestock industry, how just like so many other people, including Margaret Borland, who was uh, always supposedly married to the rich ranchman, um, and it turns out that she was the one with the ranch um, and the cattle before she married him, not the other way around. Um, but to trace Martha Loring's story uh, really shed some light. And I actually use it in my classes to show students how to research and put Good. all those sources back together. Good. And she's had to learn to read 19th century handwriting. Which is so much fun. And um, <laughs> and thanks to the magic of social media, Facebook and my Facebook friends, um, are we're a team and we transcribe a lot of documents together. And I, I think that's just about the best use of Facebook that I can come up with. <laughs> and we come up with some strange interpretations. We do, sometimes. don't we? Well, people couldn't write. You mentioned all, uh, Oliver Loving. Yeah. You've been working on that for a while, too. Tell us a little bit about, about your biography of Oliver Loving and how that's going and Interesting figure. He is an interesting figure, and because he uh, died long before Charles Goodnight, um, took a backstory to the narrative that Charles Goodnight put out there, and Jay Everett's Haley helped with that. Um, Charles, or not Charles, excuse me, Oliver Loving is a perfect example of somebody who migrated to Texas during the 1840s, took advantage of the Peters Colony settlements, um, became a trader in Collin County, and then moved to Palo Pinto and Parker County. Um, and he fits well with the narrative of being an enslaver involved in the livestock industry who has been uh, placed on the back burner, if you will, even though he is well known, his story's not known. And uh, we have a tendency to focus on those years post-Civil War, that 1866 and 67 era when he was killed and brought back rather than all of the things he did before. Um, it's progressing nicely. I, I need to take a field trip up to Denver and go out to the Bosque Redondo this summer. Um, in the summer. In the yes. summer, yes, because <laughs> there's no better time than when you can cook on the pavement. Um, but I would, I'm going to go out there and try and find some of the documents that I'm missing. Now, tell me if this is true. Charles Goodnight brought Oliver Loving's body back, iron box, right? And then gave the family a bill for bringing the body back. Is that true? I don't know about it's, that. It that sounds thing. like he, but you know. It does sound like him. Um, he supposedly, he stated that he brought him back. But if you look at family accounts and you listen to some of the oral histories from the family, uh, they say Joe brought him back. And, and so already we have a conflict. You have conflict already. Mm. But that's what makes things interesting. That is what makes it interesting. Well, as part of your work at Tarleton, you, I guess, oversee, is that the right term? The, the Gordon Center at I Thurber? don't. That's Mary's job. Mary Adams is the director at the Gordon Center. Um, and I, if you will, I'm, I'm kind of the spokesperson. I go around and talk about it um, and help promote different things, arrange different symposiums. Um, and, and it's actually a lot of fun to do that because there's a lot to talk about. Well, tell us a little bit about the Gordon Center for people who aren't familiar with Thurber and the Gordon Center. And Thurber was established in 1886. It was uh, a coal mining town, company town. 
Um, there is a lot of history in that respect because when the mines were first taken over, there were issues with pay. Um, African-American strikers were brought in. The Texas Rangers came in. Uh, they brought in people from uh, Europe, um, including a lot of Italians, to help uh, get that coal out of the ground. We then talk. We went, then go into unionization. Um, the construction of brick. Most people know Thurber for Thurber bricks, especially that can be found around on the roads. I do believe you have some in Cisco, don't have you? Have some in Cisco. We do yes, have some are, in Abilene. Thurber, had some in Abilene. Have, They're all gone in Abilene. That is terrible. It's I a think. Travesty. Yeah. yeah. I hope yeah. they used them or sold them so that they can be used to replace other bricks that are coming up in different places. Um, that's what often happens to them. When other people redo their roads, they replace them with the Thurber mm-hmm. bricks that they buy from other people. Um, but but the story of Thurber is not just the story of men working in um, horrifically difficult industries such as coal mining and brick making, but it's also the story of the women who were there with, with the men. No matter what nationality they were, and Thurber, of course, had 18 different na- nationalities represented within its town, um, the labor of the women often goes unnoticed uh, in, in place of the men who deservedly get a lot of that credit. Um, but you see the women running boarding houses, doing a lot of cooking, taking care of the children, teaching, uh, working in the offices. They were as much a part of the operation as the men themselves. Um, and I find that fascinating also. Good, good. If there was one thing you wanted to tell people to come see at the Gordon Center, what would it be? Come see our general exhibit. We, we also have changing exhibits. Um, and we give certain symposiums throughout the year. Um, contact the Gordon Center, just call them, or go ahead and friend us on Facebook. They'll keep you up with different events that we have out there. Um, our most popular events seem to have something to do with alcohol, whether it's <laughs> um, taste this kind or do this thing or um, or learn more about this industry. Mm-hmm. But um, we also do different things with kids, especially yep. kids' field strips, yep. all through the year. It's amazing how many children we have come through there and learn about the industry in Texas. Um, and different events for adults and people involved in academics and non-academics. I like the gusher exhibit where you push the button and the gusher makes noise. Is, I'm only allowed to push it once, it's though. It's so fulfilling. You push that thing. <laughs> it also works as a timer. When we have students go through there, every 20 minutes, somebody will push that button. Um, one of the children will push it, and we know that it's time to wrap it up okay. with the other groups we have. <laughs> That's good. It'll yeah, work. Because you can hear it throughout the whole It's loud museum. enough to do that. Yeah. One of the assignments you had your kids do at Tarleton, and correct me if I'm wrong, you had them research a, a cemetery? Was it an African-American cemetery? It's an, there's an African-American cemetery. Mount Olive is in Stephenville, Texas. It was established in 1922. Um, bodies were exhumed, or the remains of bodies were exhumed um, from the North End Cemetery and moved to uh, Mount Olive Cemetery, which is uh, a black cemetery. Um, I had students in my local history class all go down to the cemetery, and they picked out four names, and then they had to reconstruct the lives of those people using primary documents. So we went to the archives. We went to Texas State Archives. We went to the courthouses. We went through deeds. We went through probates um, with the idea that we are going to 
write a book that we can then turn around and give back to the Cemetery Association and that they can then go ahead and sell that to raise money or do whatever they want. Give it to people um, whose families are buried in the cemetery, whatever it is to share the important history um, of, of the black history in Stephenville, Texas. I also uh, taught a stained glass class. I had a stained glass business for 20 years. Um, and students in my stained glass class have uh, designed and will continue to work on a piece of public art that is a memorial to the people who uh, are laid to rest in the cemetery and the black history of Stevens County. That's incredible. It's, local history is so important. It is, because all history is local history. Right? It is. That's, that's right. And we're trying to get my students to do more and more, and it's more of that. It's so much fun. They enjoy it. Yeah. They enjoy it so much more than listening to me sit there and babble. I think I think it's really important for it to be personal. And when they can touch it, it's yep. personal and they they connect to it easier um, and they take a genuine interest. Um, it's, it's also been a really rewarding exercise for me in race relations because um, when a student investigates or researches about somebody, they become their person. That's they have a connection um, to who they're researching and they have a vested interest in what happened to them and the families that relate to those people. Um, and I think it's really important for students to understand how other people live um, and if it's different or if it's the same and then how they relate and they take that moving forward. And history is more than sitting in a classroom listening to somebody ramble on it's, it's about learning what happened in the past. It's about understanding the past. And it's about using those lessons from the past to move forward as a better person. That's right. That's well said. That's very well said. Well, tell us a little bit about your talk at the Grace tonight, what that's all about, and so on and so forth. This talk at the Grace is about settlement on the northwestern frontier of Texas. Um, I have spent countless hours and uh, possibly a glass of wine or two, going through census records and documenting the different occupations um, in the 1860 census for approximately 18 counties. Um, of course, the number one occupation for women in 1860 were, was domestic, but not at all counties counted the women, even though they were instructed to uh, for the 1860 census. Uh, they didn't do it. Um, but uh, you also see women doing things like farming or stock raising or being weavers or um, participating in, in different things that their husbands are engaged in, such as farming. Um, I think I said that. Uh, the other thing is that farming is definitely the number one industry. Um, but farming is one of those loaded terms. Mm-hmm. You know, are you actually making your money off the land or are you... Uh, engaged in stock raising or are you a medical doctor are you whatever so we we go through a lot of those terms we look at all those different occupations and we try to relate it to why the butterfield overland trail um had a purpose in coming through this area and what kind of people they were um bringing news to uh, taking other places um and what kind of people were running the stands and this is all connected to the Smith Station exhibit from it the Chimney Creek is. Ranch. It's going on to Grace yes. for a little bit longer, yes. right? Yes, I think through July the, uh, the 15th. Um, the Pops, uh, Ted and Nancy, Ann and Hank, 
um, have generously donated uh, their, their findings that they had from Chimney Creek or from Smith Station um, for an exhibit. Um, I believe they'll take those home after the exhibit, as I would also, because there's some fabulous findings there. Um, and uh, it helps put Shackelford County in the bigger picture of that early settlement um, here in North Texas at that time. As somebody once said, all roads lead to Shackelford County. Well, one, I don't one, know who said that. One but. way or another. But it's true. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> it? It seems like everything you research, you somehow end up in Albany, Shackelford County Albany. Yeah. eventually. Eventually. Well, you know, there's some good food out there. There's some good people out there. And there's some amazing history out it there. It might have been Ted Pulp that said that. It I, might have been. It, somebody said Undoubtedly that. Undoubtedly, he said that. What else you got? Going? Any more lectureships or anything going on this summer? I or? don't have anything going on this summer, so I'm going to spend time focusing on, on my writing and my research. I have several digital projects going on, and so I'm working on website design with with a company because I finally realized I can't do it myself. Um, and a lot of these have to do with bills of sales of enslaved people along the frontier. I have several thousand right now, and I'm trying to figure out how to log them and upload images of those so that other researchers can then use that to, to further their research. Um, and I'm also going through the 1850 and 1860 census records, and we're logging, trying to, uh, with the help of very patient interns, uh, <laughs> log all the people who claimed to own slaves in 1850 and 1860, and we're documenting um, how many uh people that they listed on the schedule two which was part of the census records um and then and then cross-referencing that to find out what occupations um they they held or claimed where they were from um, and then we can analyze things like whether uh, men or women owned enslaved people um what business they were involved in what occupation they were involved in what was the average age, and then and then focus on the enslaved people themselves, um, how many were in uh, different units, um, what their general age was, and we can cross-reference that with bills of sale and see if we can connect any of those other people together. Sounds like a lot of work, but it sounds like it's interesting work. It's I truly, truly love it. Good. Yeah. And it shows. Yeah. It shows that you love what you do. Yeah. It's exciting. Good. History can be exciting. It is. And I think that's something we need to get across to our students. I think that's very more. important. If you were giving advice, as you probably do sometimes, to someone who's a history major or considering being a history major, wanting to go into the field of history, what advice would you give them? Find a topic you truly enjoy. Um, don't always focus on what is hot. At the moment, don't always focus on the bigger pictures that you think are important. Focus on a subject that you truly find um, stimulating, captivating, and and something that you think you can add more to um, and run with it. What you'll find later is that, as I was told um, by one of my mentors, research is like a coral reef. You start with a center, and then you continuously build on that. Um, in the beginning, everything is related, and in the end, when the top, by the time your coral reef is built, one thing can be completely um, a different topic than what you started with, but it's interesting to you, and that's what's important about being a historian because that makes you a better researcher and a better writer. Your mentors had better quotes than my mentors did. 
Well, I made a lot of that up. But okay, they, good. They we, basically inspired well, If you're going to be a historian, you got to learn to do that, too. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Debbie, thank you so much for coming in, kind of on the spur of the moment today. Yeah. Thank As you, you so were making your way into Abilene. Me. I appreciate being here. And this is a wonderful studio. Thank you. I oh, appreciate Cisco's College. I appreciate that. We, we, you, we put a lot of work into this yes, thing. So they want to do a lot more with it. So we'll, we'll see. Thank you for coming by. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You bet. We'll see you all next time on the Cisco Compass. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Cisco Compass Stories from the Big Country of West Texas. If you'd like more information about uh, the stories or guests told on this podcast, please feel free to contact me at john, J-O-H-N, dot caraway, C-A-R-A-W-A-Y, at cisco.edu. And join us next time for another story and another episode of Cisco Compass. Copyright 2023, John Caraway.